Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by Sweet Spot for iPhone. Sweet Spot is an app. It's a simple way to curate and share your favorite experiences. You go on a road trip. You can share that with friends via the uh, Sweet Spot for iPhone app. You can keep track of your favorite restaurants and bars. You can share uh, your favorite museums, monuments, whatever you want. Sweet Spot for iPhone is built for you. You can use the app to follow your friends, your family, uh, or your favorite celebrities, actors, writers, artists, chefs, whatever. And then when you build your own curations, you can pull in photos from Instagram and Facebook. You can pull in locations from Google Maps. And then... Use tags and text to tell a story. From there, you share those curations to your social media. Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Pinterest, and Google+. Sweet Spot, it, it's a little bit different from other apps in that it wants you to be really thoughtful. It wants you to connect places to places and moments to moments. Also, very important, it's free. You can download Sweet Spot for iPhone right now, free of charge, over at the App Store. This is an app. You can download it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is apparently happening. This is a good thing to listen to while driving. How are you today? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. I have a great show for you. Merritt Tierce is my guest. Her debut novel is called Love Me Back. It's out there now from Doubleday. It is uh, generating a lot of buzz, earning all sorts of critical acclaim. And, uh, you know, we had a good time talking, and I'm going to be uh, sharing that with you in a moment. Before uh, we get started, I did want to say a few words about my week and about the week that we've uh, had uh, in the literary community, in the literary media. God, I sound like a nerd. I imagine most of you are aware, though, right? A lot of dark stories, a lot of dark stuff happening this week, a lot of upsetting stuff. Uh, you had the Ed Champion story, you had the Stephen Tully Dirks story, you have the allegations against Tao Lin. Uh, there's been a lot to process. And I'm still processing, to be honest with you. So I'm not going to make any grand proclamations. I don't know what to say uh, with any kind of authority. 
about this stuff. It's still playing out. And, uh, you know, I have some opinions about certain aspects of certain stories, but I don't want to share them. I don't want to share them. (laughs) I don't want to talk too much about it. It's been really toxic. And, uh, I don't know if I'm the right guy or if I don't, I don't even know if a guy is supposed to be the one like, like is, do you know, do we really need like a white man, a middle-aged white dad to settle this? You want me to hash that out for you? I don't think so, but I will tell you a story, uh, from my perspective as the host of this show, you know, because I've been thinking like, Oh my God, this is uh, clearly like the big story. This is, or these are the big stories. This is a central concern. Everyone's talking about this good, bad, or ugly. People are talking about this. I host a show that has uh, literary concerns, obviously. And so maybe it would be uh, wise of me to try to create a show built around these stories so that we can have some sort of conversation, uh, you know, preferably of the constructive variety. But I was reticent about it. You know, A, like, what am I going to say? Like, do I know how to do that show? Am I the right guy to do that show? And then who do I have on? So there's just a lot of awkwardness and trepidation on my uh, end of things. And there still is. But what I did uh, was I, I reached out to Emily Gould, who uh, many of you know was uh, the subject of some abuse from uh, some attacks from Ed Champion earlier this summer. Like The most recent Ed Champion episode involved uh, a young female author named Porachista Kakpur. And forgive me if I'm mispronouncing that. But uh, Emily was uh, the subject of Ed's uh, ire back in June when her novel Friendship came out. So she had experience with him. I've had her on the show, so we know each other a little bit. And uh, I wrote her an, uh, you know, an email saying, listen, uh, feel free to say no to this. I feel awkward even asking, but you know, this is obviously the big story. If you and or Porachista wanted to come onto the podcast and discuss it, I'd be open to that. And then I sent it. And then I got nervous about having sent it. And then I did not hear back from her for like 24 hours. And the way that I'm wired is I was sitting there just going, oh God, I fucked up. I shouldn't have sent that email. She thinks I'm, you know, I'm a uh, muckraking tabloid journalist, (laughs) tabloid podcaster. So... There's a lot of that kind of obsessive thinking and worrying. And uh, so then, but, you know, I should also say, like speaking of obsessive thinking, you know, I was obsessed. I have been obsessed with these stories all week. I can't stop reading about them. I can't stop ingesting them, even though it's toxic. Not necessarily proud of that, but I say it because it's true. And I think it's probably fairly common for those of us who are aware of these stories and who care. So many people I know were just digging into this stuff all week long to the point where like that act became something of a joke. It was like, I can't stop reading about this shit. So, you know, one of my, you know, one of the things I kept reading was Emily and Porochista's Twitter feeds. I would go to their specific feeds because obviously they are major players uh, in, in one of these stories, in the Ed Champion story. And they had a lot to say on Twitter this week. They were both very active, and they had a lot of interesting uh, things to say. They were retweeting things. and It was just kind of like the place to go for me to find out what was going on and what people were thinking. So, uh, if you can picture this, 
It's like more than, it's about 24 hours since I've sent my initial invitation to Emily Gould. And uh, I'm putting my daughter to bed. It's like 8 o'clock at night. My daughter's like drifting off. I'm in, I'm in her bed. I'm in her room. And I'm like tucking her in. She's like drifting off. And I'm lying there in the dark. And uh, she's got her little dream light on. So there's like purple stars all over the ceiling. And when you put your kid to bed, like they start to drift off. You're just kind of lying there. And if you get up, then they get up. And so you got to kind of just stay still. So I have my phone. And I'll sit there and, you know, text with people or look at Twitter while my daughter goes to sleep. So I, I go to Twitter and uh, I'm at my, uh, you know, my Brad Listy account, the, uh, the bot account. And for those of you who I think most of you know, I talked about this a while back, but uh, my at Brad Listy Twitter feed is, is uh, bot generated. There's a, I hired a guy to create a bot and the bot just spits out like psychedelic nonsense <laughs> on my behalf and uh, under my name. And I, you know, I did this to try to automate my life so that I could maintain uh, a semi-entertaining Twitter presence without actually having to do it. But it hasn't really helped me. I still check Twitter, you know, compulsively. Like, I, I now check my own feed to see what I said. <laughs> Which uh, just, like, kind of doubles the absurdity of Twitter. So, anyhow, uh, I'm in bed, you know, tucking my daughter in, lying there in the dark, and I go to Emily Gould's Twitter feed to read, like, the, the news, to catch up on the latest or whatever, to get her thoughts. And, of course, you know, I'm also in the back of my mind going, she hates me. She thinks I'm, uh... Thinks I'm a bad guy for asking her to be on my podcast to talk about this horrible incident. And uh, so I go to her Twitter feed, and as I'm scrolling down her Twitter feed, I accidentally followed her. Like my my thumb hit the little follow icon, <laughs> hit the little follow icon, and I followed her. I followed her on Twitter. And so then, uh, as I'm lying there in the dark staring up at the ceiling I start to think my mind starts to uh, spiral as it sometimes does and I thought to myself like oh my god you know I sent this email to Emily yesterday and now I've just accidentally followed her on Twitter and she will receive a notification that I followed her she's probably looked at my email but hasn't responded and now she thinks like oh my god he's now following me on Twitter like this guy uh, is relentless he's trying to nudge me to respond to my initial email he's being weird and annoying and you see you see how that could happen you see how my head spiraled out of control so then uh lying there in the dark i uh i wrote on my phone a very tedious very lengthy email to emily gould in which uh i said uh you know dear emily this is tedious beyond belief but i just followed you on twitter and i want to let you know that 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 it was an accident And I said that, you know, that probably sounds odd. Allow me to explain. Uh, I sent an email to you yesterday inviting you to guest uh, on my podcast. Not sure if you've seen it. Uh, I was ambivalent about sending it. I didn't want to seem tabloidy. But at the same time, I do a literary show that deals with the concerns of the literary community. And, uh, you know, the whole Ed Champion thing was certainly a concern of late. And uh, then I admitted that I had been following the story, uh, you know, very closely, perhaps too closely, slash obsessively. And uh, I told her that I had been reading her Twitter feed and Porachista's feed uh, regularly because, they, you know, they were at the center of the story and, and have been having interesting things to say. 
I then told her that, uh, you know, I was putting my daughter to bed. I was waiting for her to go to sleep. I went to check. I told her the whole story. I went to check Twitter on my phone. I was scrolling. I accidentally hit the little follow icon. I started worrying, etc. I brought her up to speed. I told her that I didn't want her to perceive my accidental follow as a nudging to respond to my initial email, <laughs> which would of course be very annoying behavior. And so I was then sending this follow-up email to clarify and so on. So it was embarrassing. And yet I felt, you know, it was, it was necessary to let her know that because that was not completely unrealistic. Somebody sends you an email inviting you to be on a show, uh, you don't respond, then they're following you on Twitter. It's conceivable that she could perceive that as like, oh, he's nudging. Do you follow me? People, do you understand where I'm coming from? <laughs> I don't want to be a nudger. I, don't want to, I didn't want her to think that there was any kind of uh, subtext to the follow. Like the last thing this poor girl needs is another guy being a bother to her on the, you know, on the internet. And then uh, finally, just to, just to kind of uh, add one additional layer of tedium and absurdity to the entire, uh, you know, uh, transmission, I had to explain to her regarding the, quote, accidentalness of my, of my uh, Twitter follow that I was already following her from my uh, other people Twitter account. Because it's kind of rude to tell somebody, oh, I accidentally followed you on Twitter. <laughs> Didn't mean to follow you. But the, the truth is that my uh, other people account is uh, much more active. My Brad Listy account's a bot. For now. So I had to explain that to her. Or at least I thought I did. And then uh, I sent the email to her. And I waited. And uh, fortunately, Emily was lovely about it. She emailed me uh, first thing the next morning, laughing at me. And she told me it was no big deal. And she politely and very graciously, and I think uh, wisely, declined to uh, to appear on the show and, and rehash the whole uh, Ed Champion fiasco. I mean, what else is there to say? It's been, ha you know, it's been rehashed enough, I think. So, that was my week. That was the drama of my week. That was my... That was how the drama uh, of this whole thing affected me in a uh, hopefully semi-comical way. It's tough to talk about. It's like a minefield, you know. You walk out into those uh, into that into this space and you try to discuss it. It's like walking. It feels like walking into a minefield. It's very fraught. So I'm not going to do it. <laughs> That's the extent of it, right there. You just heard it. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. 
The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest once again is Merritt Tierce. Uh, it's a great thrill to have her here. Her new novel, her debut novel, Love Me Back, is available now from Doubleday. And uh, it's one of the season's uh, biggest debuts. I think I, I feel uh, secure in saying that. So here she is, folks. This is Merritt Tierce. And her book, once again, is called Love Me Back. Right this second, I am sitting on a hotel bed uh, because the phone has a very short cord, and uh, that's where I have to sit. And I'm surrounded by a half-unpacked suitcase and a view of the bottom of Central Park. Well, that's not so bad. You're, so you're on book tour in New York? No. Is, this, is that what this is? Yes, yes. I have a cup. My my pub date was yesterday, and I have a couple of events in New York um, the next few days. Wow, that's exciting! Congratulations. Thank you. And I hope that this phone cord isn't too short. Like I'm sort of picturing you, like you know, bent, like leaning over in some sort of really uncomfortable position, <laughs> trying. No, I'm sitting in lotus on the bed, so you I'm are. perfectly comfortable. You're zen, You're completely zen out. Are you really sitting? You can sit in full lotus. You can do that. No, I can't. I have absurdly tight hips. I'm sitting like crisscross applesauce, I guess, is okay. what they would Okay. Are you a Buddhist? No. Oh, you're not. I'm nothing. You're nothing. Okay. <laughs> well, I just, I, the, the lotus familiarity. Like, I guess you could be like a person who does yoga or something and get into like right. lotus. Um, so, okay. I, I want to start uh, also by telling you that I like your name. Uh, it's not a common name, but I really like it. And it sounds something, it sounds uh, southern to me, like Merritt Tierce. Uh, I know you're from Texas, right? And it just sounds right. so, it sounds very southern and I don't know, I like that. Thank you. I like my name too. I'm actually named I'm not named after this author, but my mother saw my name uh a man wrote a book called Johnny Reb and his name was Merritt Parmelee Allen. One of my name. It's okay. actually a man's but well, yeah, yeah, I like it. It works both ways. So uh, you, you grew up in Texas? Like, what part of Texas? I grew up all over Texas in really small shit towns. Um, my dad was a high school band director, which is a, a really political position, sort of like a football coach or a preacher. I mean, you know, you are warmly welcome for a particular length of time, and then you're not anymore. So Why not? I don't get um, it. Like, what's political about a band director? Like, people want their kid to be first chair or something? Or I don't know. I don't really get it either. And a lot of, like, you know, um, some of our moves were, I think, uh, career advancement. My dad um, never was an assistant band director. He started out as the head director at a very tiny school and then gradually... Um, moved to bigger schools and bigger programs. Um, but then there were some times when we moved, and I wasn't really sure why. I don't know. I, I was a kid. Um, but, yeah, people can be pretty uh, 
intense about their children's achievements, you know, and it doesn't seem to matter what the venue. Yeah, so, I guess I guess that's right. People get very invested in their children, and it could be like the mm-hmm. tr- like the trombone, and suddenly like it's life or death. <laughs> uh, yeah, my son actually the trombone, but it's not life or death. Yeah, well, you 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 come at it from an informed perspective, but. Uh, when you say you were moving around from shit town to shit town in Texas, like was it a particular like chunk of Texas, or was it just all over the state? Because I mean, Texas is pretty big. So no, it was yeah, Texas is enormous. It's even bigger than I ever like. I I know it's big, but it's always bigger than I think it is. I've here my whole life. Um, and yeah, we stayed sort of in the west part and the central. Texas part, um, I guess the biggest chunk of my childhood was spent in Gatesville, which is uh, west of Waco, and there's nothing there but a federal prison and um, Fort Hood, the Army base. So when I lived there, the population was like 11,000, and everybody who lived there was connected in some way to the prison or the Army base. Oh, God. Um, Yeah. So wait, was your but your dad was the high school band director. He wasn't like the prison. Right, he wasn't, yeah. he wasn't or, or know, the, the prison. Or... Right. No, but he wasn't working at the prison directing a band or anything. No, he wasn't. Okay, okay. So And my mom was a, a librarian, so they were both teachers. Okay. Well, and so I I kind of get like how a writer could come of that coupling and of that particular background. Um, do you have any musical ability? Ability? Uh <laughs> Well, I was forced to take piano lessons for 10 years, which I appreciate now, but I never learned. It's not like I can sit down at the piano and play now. Um, I did play the trumpet in uh, all through junior high and high school, and I was quite good. Um, but I left high school early uh, after my sophomore year, so my career was sort of truncated. What happened? I went to college early, basically. I enrolled in this program called the Texas Academy of Math and Science, which is at the University of North Texas in Denton, and it's a two-year residential program, so you you live on campus in the dorms, and you go to regular college classes with freshmen and sophomores, Um, and uh, then at the end of those two years, the, the program gives you a high school diploma, because basically anything you took your first two years of college satisfies the requirements for a high school diploma so i did that so okay so you you, like obviously you were a good student you were bright but like were you also really unhappy and that's why you wanted to get out and try something new like you were like i've had enough of these small towns in west texas like i want to get onto a college campus yeah i was exactly but that's strange to me because i i was really sheltered growing up and i don't even know how i knew there was more out there or how I knew to be dissatisfied with, you know, what I, the culture that I grew up in. Um, but I, I was, I really wanted something more challenging and, um, I had never even come close to it academically or, you know, I don't know. I was just a pretty solitary kid and, a lot of that was I just didn't feel like I could connect to many people in the places that I lived. Were you an only child? No, I have a brother. He's three years younger. Okay. Was he the same way or was it sort of like just you? 
It was just me. He's, <laughs> There's always uh, I, he's normal. Yeah. <laughs> no, he's um, he was very social, and he is a phenomenally gifted athlete and musician. And um, a lot of my childhood revolved around his baseball career, and he actually was drafted by the Yankees out of college. And uh, holy shit! Yeah, and he played in the minor leagues for a few years, um, and. What's really remarkable is that he was, I think, even more talented as a percussionist. Um, he was the first chair all-state percussionist. He must have gotten so many girls. Oh, my God. Um, but you can't, I mean, you can go to college on a scholarship, and it's kind of, it's harder to do on a music scholarship. Did but. you did you hear what I said, though? I was like, he must have had a lot of girlfriends. If the guy's like an awesome athlete and, he can, and he's a musician. <laughs> yeah. He was. He was very popular. Uh with the ladies wow it's like a texas hero that's like the perfect resume yeah so okay and you said and you said that like you know you like because i feel like this is sort of this is sort of common you know you have a family um you said you grew up sheltered like what what do you mean like i mean i think a lot of us maybe feel we grew up sheltered but like how sheltered are we talking um most of my social life what little there was of it revolved around church activities and the music I listened to was usually either church music or band music. Um, church or what? What was the second kind? Band. Oh, band. Right, like, right, right. Right. Music for wind symphonies. And um, and I also was naturally inclined to be uh, really hermetic and introverted. And so it was sort of fine with me that I was sheltered. I wasn't itching to go out and, you know, paint the town any certain color. Um, but, I mean, it, my parents' lives revolved around me and my brother, and um, I didn't get much exposure to anything beyond well, and you, you and know, you, school and, and- well, you, okay, so church. Let's get to church because that you know you're in Texas. You're in Texas, small towns. Uh, it sounds like you come from a, a religious family. Um, like what? What religion? Uh, I want to say Southern Baptist. That's not actually a religion, but it's not Christian. It's a denomination. Um, oh, okay. I mean, the way that I was raised in it, you would think that it was a religion until you were about you know twelve or thirteen. Because the Southern Baptist, the Southern Baptists are pretty hardcore. Like that's a, a pretty yeah. committed situation. I have uh, some family members who are Southern Baptists, and like, like my family's Catholic. They're they're Southern Baptists, and I feel like they uh, are on another level. Yeah, and they like I don't know the way that, that I was raised. We sort of it might not have been explicitly taught, but. You look askance at any other um, religion, certainly, but even other practices of Christianity. So, like, Catholicism was just like as, almost as foreign as, you know, Islam. It wasn't considered, you know, the true faith in a certain sense. So the Southern Baptists think they have the one true faith. I mean, I can't speak for all of them, but right. right. Well, but I mean, uh, like, like from a, from like a, a dogma or a, 
a doctrine, you know, a doc, what is the word? A doctrine standpoint. Like, is that what's being taught essentially or implied? I guess all faiths sort of a lot, you know. Or, well, I think implied just by, like, you know, that's the reason a denomination exists is because it thinks that it has figured out the right way to um, live in the world through this religion. So, yeah, it's taught that this is the way. But I mean, like, do you think that there's like maybe more of an intense, like looking askance at other religions? Because I think that's the thing. I think all the religions, you know, obviously that's why they're religions. They feel like they've figured it out. But I think some of them um, like have a greater uh, hostility or whatever towards other faith traditions than, you know, than some. And I, I just don't know anything about it. But like with the Southern Baptists, like were you being taught like, you know, if somebody's a Buddhist, they're they're going to burn in hell. Is that the deal? No, I mean, well, okay. I think that some people are taught that in the Southern Baptist tradition and other evangelical fundamentalist Christian traditions. I don't remember being taught that, especially myself, but I do remember this feeling of um, something like, oh, we... We pity them because they haven't really figured it out like we have. <laughs> right, right, right. It's like that. What, what is the what is the word for that? Where it's like pity, but it's also like it's not humble bragging. That's it's you know, but it's something similar. It's like a fusion of, right. of two different things that you know. Right. So, okay, so um, you're growing up in this, and um, you're participating in it willingly, as children do. I mean, you don't have much of a choice at, at a certain age, but. Like, at what point, are you still involved, or are you out of it? You said you're out of it. You, you said you're nothing now, when I asked you if you were a Buddhist. So, oh, yeah. I'm, yeah. You're, I, you're, you're an, ap- an apostate, or what, what do they call it? An ap- I am. Okay. I am. I call so, myself that. Uh, okay. So when did, it, when did it start for you? Like, when did the questioning start? When did your, at least, internal movement away from the church happen? Um, I mean, it was it was coming for a long time, I think. Uh, and it was kind of spurred into high gear when I had kids. And I, um, it started when I was, when I was 19 and I got pregnant, um, unexpectedly. And the shame that I felt, you know, directed at me because of my religion was really overwhelming. And um, in fact, my the father of the baby, um, his congregation, which was Church of Christ, wanted me to come down to the front at the end of a service uh, and basically like declare that I had sinned because I was pregnant and we weren't married. And oh, God. that, yeah, it was mortifying and it enraged me and I refused to do it. Um, and... And then my parents pressured us to get married, and his parents pressured us to get married, and um, so we got married and uh, had two kids very quickly. And we were going to a church. We were going to a Church of Christ um, where we lived, and the Church of Christ is even more conservative than Southern Baptist, and women are not allowed to address the assembly. They're not allowed to teach children older than five. And it's just, you know, a part of the explicit structure of the organization that women are, you know, um, subservient. And 
I couldn't stand that. And but I felt like I if I hadn't had kids so early, I might have wrestled with it a lot longer than I did because I felt like I could take the shame of being thought lesser, but I couldn't stand the part where I was supposed to, you know, indoctrinate my children to think that that was the way yeah you know it's an interesting it's an interesting question because you know you look at like uh a lot of religions like i think of catholicism just because i'm familiar with it but you know obviously women can't be priests and you know the the nuns clearly take a back seat to the cardinals and you know to that whole thing and i i look at like the women in my family who are like full-on catholic and i think to myself like how does this not bother you like how can you how can you um compute this and be like, Oh, it's okay. You know, like I'm, I'm okay being a part of this organization that, I mean, to, to say nothing of like child abuse and all the well-documented horrors that we've seen lately, but you know, it's a strange thing because there are a lot of women in the church of Christ. There are a lot of women in, um, you know, who are Southern Baptists There are a lot of women in all these religions and they, they, uh, they willingly accept this. And I find that puzzling and uh, sad. Yeah, I, I do too. And I mean, I'm not like, I don't assume that all of those women have no questions about the way things are or that they don't, I mean, hate it like I did. I don't know. I think that religion is, um, feels like such a giant system to many people. And to think that you have the ability in your own small self to, question it and take it on and overthrow it is pretty arrogant, I think. It's a big step for a lot of people to take. And I don't even, I don't know how I was able to do it, really. Um, you mean get yourself out of it? Like, a, like become an apostate? Yeah. Yeah, because you have to, you have to realize that you're inside the box of it before you can get out of it but right well and it's also i think the thing about it too is that um a person's faith particularly somebody who has been uh, heavily indoctrinated or you know has been it's a deep part of the experience of their childhood and you know the parents are intensely religious it becomes a thing it becomes a part of your identity and i think right anything that is really in you know um entwined with your sense of who you are of course it's hard to renounce it because it feels like a kind of death. It's like, Oh God, if this isn't true and this isn't what I believe, then like, who am I? Because it's how it's like this, uh, this thing you use to make sense of yourself. And so I understand, I understand how people can have a hard time, um, breaking free of it. Right. And it's a traumatic, it's, it can be traumatic. I mean, was it traumatic for you to, I mean, did your folks, I mean, your, your parents couldn't have been pleased. Did you tell them like, by the way, like I'm, I'm turning in my card or I, I'm now like, I don't know. Are you an, are you an atheist? Like, well, how do you know? Do- I, I actually, this was, um, Oh, 12 or 13 years ago. And I, we've actually never had a single conversation about it. I mean, of course they're aware at this point that I don't go to church and, but we're just like such quiet, non-confrontational people that, uh, we've never talked about it. And, um, it was traumatic for me, but, but I didn't. I, it's only recently that I've begun to connect the trauma that my that was my uh, 
20s, basically the entirety of them, uh, to leaving that behind. And it, it wasn't that I, I felt myself uh, adrift without some sort of organizing principle in life. But I think that's exactly what happened. I just, I let go of that willingly. I didn't miss it. I haven't missed it. I basically wake up every day grateful that I don't have to believe that or do any <laughs> service to it. But that, like, like you said, I had been indoctrinated from a very young age. And without that structure, I really was, I just floundered in some pretty harmful ways because I wasn't sure how to rebuild me. So meaning when you say floundered in some harmful ways, like what, what does that mean? Oh, I just was really, I was really unhappy and depressed. And that wasn't all because of the loss of religion. I mean, I think that um, becoming a mother and a wife too early had a lot to do with that too. Sure. But uh, I, you know, I don't know. I was addicted to drugs and cutting myself and burning myself and all kinds of um, just sort of physical manifestations of pain. So, and you, and you think that like, it was a, it was like a packet. I mean, it was a, a combination of things. It was that you're in this marriage and you have, and you're a mother. I mean, a mother at 19, um, parenthood's obviously a huge, <laughs> huge shift and a huge responsibility. You were a kid when you became a parent and, uh, like you were coming to grips with that, and then, like you're feeling, de- were you feeling detached? I guess I'm. What I'm. I guess what I'm driving at is I'm trying to understand, uh, and maybe, uh, maybe you don't quite know entirely. But I'm, I'm curious as to why you think um, you use these things. You know, that use drugs and like started to try to hurt yourself. I mean, what was, what was the the psychology? Um, I think. The psychology was, in large part, to just what I had internalized in my upbringing, which was not to express feelings, but to uh, stifle them. And I had so many powerful feelings that I wasn't able to stifle them all. But I couldn't allow myself to really let them turn toward maybe, you know, the objects they should have been directed at. Um, So instead they just sort of came out in these really contorted, you know, painful ways. Yeah. And what what were the drugs that you were uh, involved with? Mainly cocaine. Oh, wow. See, and like, I mean, I, I don't mean in any way to minimize or anything, but I feel like the story of um, a, a person raised in uh, a really intense faith tradition, you know, that's very rigid um, and moralistic and whatnot, um, A, um, getting pregnant as a teenager or young, and then B, um, especially if there's like a, a break with the church winding up um, – kind of having like this big rebellion and it can take, you know, various forms, but I feel like that's sort of a familiar tale, you know, like, mm-hmm. it's a, I do, which it's, should tell us something yeah. about religion and the effect it has on young women in particular. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
Um, do you think you were angry? I mean, because I think when, like, I have some of that where it's like, why was I told this? Like, why was I not allowed to question? Why was I, um, you know, why was I sort of condemned for questioning and for having my own ideas? And, uh, you know, I don't mean to paint too harsh of a picture because um, my parents were great, but there is some anger. Like, I think it's it's hard to get rid of it. It's like, God, man, I I, I should have... Uh, I should have been uh, applauded <laughs> for thinking about this a little bit, as opposed to being told I was wrong. Like, do you have any anger right. in that, you know, in that way? No, but that's my own. I don't know. Anger is. Uh, I, I haven't gotten there yet. You're, you're like I, I just. Also, I just did blow and cut myself. <laughs> you know, like I, I didn't, yeah, I didn't, right. I, didn't I, mean, have, I didn't have time to be angry. I feel like being angry at my parents would be I don't like I that wouldn't make sense to me logically just because I feel like they were doing what they genuinely thought was best and that and they, they were very loving incredible parents um which you can you can never really realize how you were parented until you're grown and especially when you have children of your own then suddenly you have incredible perspective on it. Well, um, God, now I feel like an asshole. <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> no, no, I mean, but I understand exactly what you're saying. Yeah. I, I would not have chosen to have been raised that way, but there are many worse ways I could have been raised, I suppose. That's um, right. That's right. And like, you know, I should also say like, as, as backwards as I think some of uh, religion can be, you know, there is something to having like a moral framework or like a sense of, you know, there is some good in it. it it's, it, I think it would be unfair to paint it all with like a, um, a negative brush. I mean, entirely though. I don't think you need religion in order to get a sense of right and wrong. You know, I don't think it's like, right. I don't either. So, okay. So, wow. So like the, you've been through a lot and, um, you know, I, I feel like the, the book that you wrote and, uh, the work that you do, cause I know you work now as like an abortion rights advocate. Yes, well, I I was the executive director of a nonprofit that is an abortion fund until a, a couple of weeks ago, but I recently resigned so that I can write. Okay, so you broke. Okay, but still, like, not necessarily um, the most politically popular position in Texas, I would imagine, to be working in that capacity. <laughs> no, it's uh, <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like defending the Alamo. Yeah. I mean, so what, okay. So how do like, I'm, I'm imagining too, that your experiences as a young mother informed your politics and your beliefs with regard to reproductive rights, or were you there before you even had a child? Yeah, they did for sure. I mean, um, I just think that it's a, it's a fundamental human right to have access to abortion with no questions asked. And, at, 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 any, at any stage of the pregnancy? Yeah, at any stage of the pregnancy. Okay. I'm just, I'm curious because I, I, I actually talked about this with somebody on the show not too long ago. And, you know, I wrestle with this because, of course, I was raised and it's like abortion's awful, never do it. And <clears throat> I'm pro-choice politically. Like, that's where my, I think people should be able to have the choice. But I do feel... Um, that people who are horrified by late-term abortion, um, you know, health of the mother notwithstanding, if the child has some sort of, like, horrible um, illness or something that's going to cause it to be miserable in life or to have, like, you know, uh, almost no life at all, then 
yes, I understand that the you know that context matters, but um, I do feel like wow, God, if you're going to do it, do it early. Uh, like, what would you say to that? I would say that um, most women, I mean, overwhelmingly, would prefer to have an abortion early in the pregnancy, and that's exactly why what's happening in Texas is so fucked up because. Um, with the closure of half the clinics in the state, what we saw in, in my organization is that um, people were having to delay their appointments. I mean, they would call us for help at four or five weeks, and if they could have, they would have had the abortion that day. But by the time they were actually able to have it, they were 16, 17 weeks along, and that's so unnecessary and so painful to know that that has been forced on people by the state government. Yeah. It's all, and it's always men. I mean, you know, it's a bunch of men, generally speaking, <laughs> making these rules and deciding what's right. And that feels fucked up. But to me, it feels like uh, they should be free. And, you know, for people who don't have uh, resources and, you know, get them in there early. And there shouldn't be like a, a financial component that prolongs the situation or an access component. No, there should, and there absolutely is. Yeah. If you don't have money, then you have, you know, fewer options by far uh, than someone who has money. And the people who don't have money are the people who are least able to afford another child. Most of them already have children. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a root really bad it must have been tough must have been tough work like did it did you quit i mean you quit because you want to focus on writing but um were you emotionally drained it must be like one of those jobs where uh it takes a lot out of you yeah it it is hard to hear heartbreaking stories every day but it's so important that i mean i I don't think it i still had a lot of gas on that front um because any victory is life-changing, even if it's just for one person, you know? Sure. So Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I, I, I sort of lost you there for a second. But um, so how did – I'm curious, like, A, like, do your parents know that you do this work? Like, is that something you guys – I guess you probably don't talk about it. No. I mean, uh, they – do and you know with the internet these days <laughs> I, <laughs> right. I have no idea how much they know about me because it's all out there and until a couple days ago my book was public so like you could know anything you wanted to know about me from the internet so I, maybe they do I don't know yeah but um, never they under- knew that I had ne- worked I was, gonna, I was just going to say, never underestimate like a, a parent, uh, a parent's lack of, uh, you know, googling ability. At least my parents. I don't think my parents have. <laughs> I don't think my parents have ever googled me, or it might, they might not even know how. <laughs> my parents are pretty savvy, actually. Oh, but, they are. Um, yeah, I. They know that I, that I worked for, um, the Texas Equal Access Fund, and that you know it it's an abortion fund, but like. We never really talked about the work, um, and the word abortion especially was not used. Wow. Uh, See, it, it, I mean, it, they might say, like, something about the nonprofit. That was the euphemism, my nonprofit. <laughs> it's so fascinating to me, this dynamic in families and, like, the bonds of familial and, like, you know, parent-child love 
and how they can transcend uh, these sorts of things. Because, you know, you your belief system, like how you see the world, uh, like how you behave in the world is completely at odds with the fundamentals of how your parents view the world. And yet the relationship sounds like it's still strong. The love is still there. And it's instructive because I, you know, I don't think that these kinds of transcendencies happen as often with non-family members, you know, like the judgment that would be brought down, whether it's in the privacy of one's home or it's just internal or it's in conversation at church or whatever is a lot more harsh, but when it's your own kid, then it's like, you know, the nonprofit and you just keep quiet. Yeah, exactly. I'm so, I'm so fascinated by how that, that can happen. It happens in my own family, you know? Mm Mm-hmm we sort of table these things or we find ways to compartmentalize. And, um, I guess compartmentalizing might be the way that you, you know, that a, a unit can function without uh, like falling into dire conflict. But there's a part of me that wonders like, you know, it, it, wouldn't it be healthier to dialogue about this or maybe not? Is it better to just not talk about stuff? Right. I don't think it is. I think that it's just harder to talk about it. And I mean, so, yeah, I have never felt like I had the energy to wade in there. And, <laughs> right. Um, That's a long night. And it, yeah, yeah. And and I, I would be very resistant if my parents ever tried to change what I thought or how I see the world. So I'm granting them the same, you know, respect, I guess. I I, um, but maybe that's a failure on my part. I don't know. Uh, I I don't know either. It's so hard. It's so hard. And, you know, I think what's most important is that, uh, you you know, a person has a good relationship with his family, even if it's based on odd silences and (laughs) repression. I I don't know. It's very, it's a tough call. I I wouldn't, I wouldn't even, uh, begin to suppose that I have the right answer, but I do find the dynamic fascinating because I think it's, it's very common. You know, it's very common in families. Someone should write a book. About yeah, it. unfortunately, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've had my children to focus on for the past fourteen years, um, so that's what we talk about, and that's what our relationship is based on. And they're incredible grandparents uh, and very generous people. So it seems I don't know. It, I would feel shitty trying to like make them be people they're not right right and so, and you know what it sounds like they don't try to do that to you you know and i think that's where it gets sticky is like when one party does it then the the retaliation happens and then you get into a debate and like you're just it's you're not gonna ch- it's very rare that a person can change another person especially at the level of identity you know like right you're, you're never going to convince somebody to change their religion or their politics like those conversations almost never go anywhere and uh, it's a damn shame, frankly. <laughs> I wish, I wish, uh, I, I wish for myself that I uh, to be as like open as possible to like a good argument, you know, as opposed to being fixed in my ideas of what I think is right. real and true, you know. And uh, but it's tough, you know. And I think like we, as human beings, reflexively, when someone um, tests us in that way, you know, the natural reflex for most of us, anyways, is to come back and to dig in, you know. Right. So, okay. So, um, writing, 
in the midst of all this, you know, you're, you, you have children young, um, you're uh, addicted to drugs and you're, you know, you go through some pretty dark times. Were you writing through this or was that something that happened after you got sober? Um, I wrote here and there through it, but I mean, not seriously. Um, I didn't start writing for real until 2007, I guess. Um, and Fuck It, which is the first story I ever published and is the chapter that anchors Love Me Back. Um, what was the name of this? What was the name of the story? Fuck It. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's a good one. That's a good title. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, that story was the first story I ever wrote, and then I just kept going with it. Um, how long did it take you? I to mean, write, I, how long did it take you to write "Love Me Back"? Seven years. Okay. And okay. I wasn't aware that I was working on a book for most of that time, but. And like, like when you work, cause I feel like people who, um, go through a lot of stuff and, 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 but you know, you aren't really writing much, um, you know, there's no regular practice over years or whatever, but then they sit down and, uh, they start to do the work. A lot of times it can be written in this kind of burst or in like a series of bursts over whatever period of time. Uh, is that how it worked for you or was it slow and plodding? No, it was definitely burst mode. Um, I would have not even a full idea for a story, but just like a feeling that I, that an idea was there somewhere and very, um, ineffable and unformed and just kind of walk around with that for a long time. And then one day I would know what the story was, which doesn't mean that I knew every word starts to finish, but I would know how it started and what it was about. But again, I don't know that I could even explain to, you know, another human who might've been standing there at that moment. This is what the story is about in words. I just, knew that if I sat down, I would be able to write it. And so then I, I would write for usually two days um, of, you know, 12 or 14 hour days of writing and not doing anything else, like not eating, not, um, and, you know, time would pass very quickly. And, um, and then after those, that, first of story making, then I would usually read the story over and over and over, like hundreds of times until I practically had it memorized and revise it slowly. And, um, and I, I, I'm very particular about how I like the story to look on paper. So when I, I write on my computer, I don't write with a portrait oriented double space find new Roman document. I, I write so that it looks like it's a book from oh. the beginning. Oh, like, really? I can't stand it on the page, double spaced and all that. It looks really flaccid to me. Um, 
So wait, wait, so, so wait, how do you, wait, how do you do that? Do you have like, you just, there's settings in Microsoft Word or something, or do you have a different program? that? Yeah. Looks... Yeah. No, I just have a template that I use where it's, you know, it's landscaped. There's two columns. The spacing is right. The text is justified. It's, you know, a font I like. It's very pleasing to me to look at as I write it. And um, I usually print the story every time I make a change, even a small change, and read it again. And, and uh, I like looking at it printed on paper that way, too. I think there's something to that. I think there's something about giving yourself... That seems smart to me, to like visually, from the moment you be, you sit down. It's never just like, oh, this is a... A Microsoft Word document, it might be something, it might be nothing. Like you were thinking like this is a book and it's it should look as such. And, you know, I think there's there's something distinctly visual about writing that um, doesn't always get, you know, it doesn't always get mentioned or articulated properly. But uh, all of us are, yeah. like, I think. All, yeah, when it's. Go ahead. I was just going to say when it's the regular manuscript format, it is so formless to me i don't i can't see it yeah. as a story yeah and then what's your font because i think a lot of us too i was just going to say like a lot of us are fixated on fonts <laughs> um in like kind of a, a nerdy uh, way <laughs> right garamond okay yeah just a classic like literary font so mm -hmm. you know you were doing this okay so you were the, you know these stories were coming to you as like you know little like subconscious seedlings or whatever you would think about them and then eventually um, you know, it would present itself to you in some kind of form. And then you were sitting down and you were writing the thing as if it were a book. So you had literary ideas, you know, like, a, or literary ambitions for this, uh, you know, from the get go, you were thinking, I want this to be a published book, even though you didn't realize you were writing. I don't know. I, don't, I never let myself think that far ahead. And, and I feel like the whole, uh, venture of being published and having a book out in the world is so arbitrary and depends on so many points of sheer luck that I don't even really know how to think about it, that I have, that I do have a published book. I don't believe for a second that it depends entirely on merit or talent or, I mean, that it's objective in the least. So I never let myself think this is what I'm going toward. I just, I wanted to write for myself, and I, I wanted the story to look good when I read it. I mean, that's why I was doing it like that. Well, that makes, you yeah, it sounds, actually, it sounds like you have good instincts. And so, um, you went to the Iowa Writers Workshop? Mm-hmm. Okay, so how did that happen? Uh, I, this one story, Suck It, carried me, uh a far piece. Um, I, that was basically all I had written and the only thing I had published when I applied to Iowa. Um, and I didn't expect to get in. I don't think anyone does. Uh, and while I was there, I wrote, um, Two or three more stories, I think. I, I felt perpetually like I wasn't getting anything done. But I, at the end of it, I did have a significant portion of what would be my book written. Well, and just the fact that you went to Iowa, you know, once again, like that's that's the uh, that's a move made by somebody who 
um, has a sense of her own talent and has some ambition. Like, you know, you say you didn't let yourself think that far ahead, but you must have had some foresight if you're like, I'm going to go to Iowa. Otherwise, you could have just gone any old place. Yeah, I, I, I applied to 13 different MFA programs. Um, and I wasn't interested in the idea of an MFA program for a long time just because I thought that um, just stubbornly I really didn't want to go somewhere with the idea that someone would teach me how to write because I know that I write the way I want to write. And while my writing is, you know, not perfected and never will be, I didn't understand um, the point of an MFA, if it meant going somewhere and subjecting my writing to the opinions or advice of people that I, you know, if I wasn't going to pay attention to it. Um, and I also was afraid of what it would be like to be, to step out and call myself a writer and be living with other people who are calling themselves writers and would it feel like completely pretentious and stupid and would I feel like, you know, would my artistic ego really survive that? Because I wasn't interested in any kind of competitive environment as a writer and that's what I had heard about Iowa. Um, yeah, what was the, it was what actually was, my friend... What was, the real, what was the real experience versus your preconception? It was very competitive. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, but the program is so big. Iowa is much bigger than, I think, almost any other MFA program out there. There's 50 fiction writers and 50 poets. And, you know, a lot of MFA programs only have the resources to take, you know, five or six students each year. And so with a program the size of Iowa's, you can really disappear into whatever part of it suits you. And um, that's, you know, so you can kind of uh, ignore whatever part of it doesn't. And so what part of it did you, did you ignore? (laughs) Um, I don't know. I sort of ignored um, everything except the community of, you know, a couple of close friends, um, Alexander Maxick. Oh, I know Xander. He's a buddy of mine. Yeah, I know. (laughs) He was my best friend there, and we're still very close. And um, so meeting him and, you know, developing that friendship that, will, you know, be lifelong and is firmly, you know, rooted in similar appreciation of uh, aesthetics, at least in writing. Um, Xander's aesthetics are more exacting than anyone else's I've ever met. So, uh, but, um, and living there for a couple of years with my kids was actually just, that experience alone was worth everything to me. Um, and it's just a, it's a magical place if you're a writer because every week two or three 
famous writers come to town, you know, in the middle of the prairie. And you can walk down the street almost any night and hear somebody really talented and accomplished um, read from their work, which is, that's another topic because readings are so hit or miss. Um, you never know what you're going to get, but. Yeah. Speaking of which, you've got one coming up. So what are you, are you ready? <laughs> uh, no, I'm not. I, I'm not ready. I don't know what I'm going to read. You have, but, no, you have uh, no idea. You haven't prepared. You're, you're just going to go in there and just like, uh, you know, figure it out five minutes before showtime. Yeah. Um, I, I forget that. I mean, when I, I, I've read enough now that I've realized I can read the same thing every time and nobody cares because most people haven't heard it before. It's only, I'm the only person who's heard it a million times, but for some reason I still want to pick something different each time. And each time I try to pick something that will be palatable to, you know, all ages or something. And it's so impossible with everything I've written. It's all X-rated. And (laughs) even the pieces that I think, oh, I could read this in front of, you know, whomever, I start reading it and then, you know, someone's bending someone else over in some back room and I'm like, shit, how did I forget about that part? <laughs> so, well, you know, it's not for children. That's just the, it's a, it's right. f- fiction for adults. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. So, okay. So you're at Iowa and, um, you know, you're making some progress and then on the business end of things, because obviously certain things have to, uh, have to happen there in order to uh, wind up published? Like, what happened with representation, and how did the book sell? Well, uh, you know, agents and editors and publishers come to Iowa to scout the talent every year, and you can meet with them if you want. I mean, they just post something that says, so-and-so, you know, Reagan Arthur will be here next week. Do you want to meet with her? Um, and I never, I did that, I think twice because I just felt like I wasn't ready for it. I was kind of intimidated by it. And, um, then at the end of my two years in Iowa, I was, uh, I won, uh, a Rona Jaffe writer's award right after I graduated from Iowa, which was the major turning point because that's a, it's $25,000 for one thing, but it's also an award that a lot of agents and publishers pay attention to. So I didn't have the typical experience where you're sending your manuscript everywhere and begging people to read it. I had the opposite experience of um, agents contacting me and wanting to meet me and wanting to represent me. And um, so that's how I got an agent. And then uh, did you have your pick? I didn't really... did, you, did you have your pick? Like you were, you basically were being courted by multiple, and then you just you went through a uh, in, like an interview process, essentially. Yes, I interviewed four or five different agents when I was in New York to accept the Rona Jaffe Award, and I didn't go with the agent that had the, um, you know, the biggest sale or. Um, you know, the longest track record. I just went with the one that I liked the most which who, do you, who was it um, who, even at the agent? time Anna Stein she's with Aitken Alexander okay and uh that was the best decision I mean I love her and 
she's been amazing for me. Um, and I'm so glad that that's how I made that decision. I mean, this whole trip of being published for the first time, all of it, I always feel like I don't know how the hell I'm supposed to know what to do in any given situation. And that was true then. I, I thought, is this the wrong way to make this decision? Should I go with this other person who, you know, just made a million dollars sale? Um, and in the end, I'm really glad that I that I went with Anna because I feel like she understands my writing really well and she's extremely um, respected in publishing and I didn't have a book ready to sell when I signed with her. It was another year or so, but as soon as I gave her the finished manuscript, she sold it within two weeks. Um, wow. At, at auction, and I got a really good deal for a first-time book. And that's allowed you to quit this job at the uh, reproductive rights thing. That's, a, that's like a dream scenario. I mean, you can't ask for a better Yeah, it debut. really is, and I'm so aware of that. I, I Yeah. And you think, I mean, the thing is, like, because people always try to measure the the worth of uh, things like awards or where you get your MFA. But, like, getting your MFA at Iowa does count for something in the business. Get, like, winning an award like, uh, the was it Rona Jaffe? Like, that, they pay attention, and it helps to grease the wheels, I would imagine. And I'm sure that was at the top of the letter that Anna Stein sent out when she submitted your manuscript, you know. Uh, she graduated from Iowa. She won this award, and it gets people's attention. Yeah, it does. So the, the lesson for people listening is uh, get into Iowa and win an award. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, but See, it, that's what I mean. How can you tell anyone to do that? I don't know how I did that. Yeah, well, it happened. That's you know. I think it takes some luck. I mean, I think you got to be good, obviously. Um, but there are a lot of good people who don't get in or they're, you know, it takes a little bit of everything, it seems like. Right place, right mm -hmm. time, right person. And, you know, to me anyway, when you try to appraise these things, it, it's the only honest answer. A little bit of luck, a little bit of good timing, a little bit of working hard and being good. And you also have um, a, a very, like I always say that like when you read something good, there's blood on the page um, one way mm -hmm. or the other. And like you have a hell of a story to tell. And this thing was stewing inside of you, um, like working on, on your subconscious level or whatever. And then it came out and... That affects people. I mean, is that like an inaccurate? Mm -hmm. I, I feel like that seems like what happened. I mean, um, you've got stories to tell. You've got stuff that you never quite were able to articulate. Look at me like psychoanalyzing you, by the way. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but, How much do I owe you? Yeah, right. No, but it just seems like, you know, you ha I, I, I sort of understand. I can relate. It seems like you had a lot of things that you couldn't say uh, or couldn't say in full uh, as a young person and into your young adult life. And then this is this is it expressing itself and finding its way out. And, um, there's something vital about that, that, right. uh, you know, moves people. And I guess the question then, you know, like, cause I, you know, we all have stuff that finds its way into our work, but what happens when you run out of stuff or can you run out of stuff? Like you work through this and you get this off your chest and then it gets to a point, I think for writers where you've got to start working from the outside in more. Um, and that can be a challenge or, or not. Do you, do you disagree? No, I don't disagree. I, I feel like I'm there and I'm, I am wondering myself, you know, if, if what I do next, if I can leave as much blood on the page, I don't know. Um, 
Yeah, like how but, do you how do you manufacture it working from the outside in? Like you got to find something that it's a good it's a good question. I think a lot of us struggle with right. that. Right. So uh, with that in and, mind, like, are you working on the follow up? I mean, now that you've had this, you, you know, you've gotten this great uh, debut book deal, and the book's going out with some fanfare and some good reviews and whatnot. Like, do you feel a pressure to follow up? And have you already dug in and started writing the second book? Um, I don't feel pressure. I feel like I have a, a tremendous opportunity, um, and I have uh, a big idea for my next project. I haven't had the chance to actually start working on it yet, but that is imminent. Did you get a multi-book deal? No, I didn't. And that, my agent asked me early in the process if I wanted her to ask for that, and I if I wanted her to ask for a two book, then I said no, because, um, I don't know. I just didn't feel like I could, I was ready for that to have, uh, something that had already been paid for hanging over me. I wasn't sure that was how I was, how I work. So that's a good decision. I think like that, like there's some wisdom in that because you do, you get like this, uh, all this heat around the first book and then you have a second book attached that, um, it is a complete phantom. There's nothing there yet, and yet you've been paid for it. Right. And I think, too, right. you know, sometimes people get these really big – it should be said that sometimes people get these really great book deals. Um, but, you know, you get this big advance. It does put pressure on the book to do well, to, you know, earn its advance back and to earn the faith of right. the public publisher for a next book. And, you know, it's like it's a, it's a, it's a high-class problem, you know. <laughs> Um, I don't think there's any writer yeah. writer alive who would turn down the big advance, but it doesn't. It does come with some uh, with with some kind of uh, negative side. You know, it does put a little pressure on the situation. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not independently wealthy or anything. So, uh, like, and especially now that I don't have a salaried job, um, I kind of have it all on the line, and and it would be nice to have some financial security. But I also feel like I need to stay. Hungry and sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, thank God you're doing this show. This is going to launch you. This is it right here. Um, you, you can sit. You can sit back and re- you can sit back and relax now. Fantastic. <laughs> so okay. Well, um, and like Noah, you have this idea for the second book. Are you willing to divulge, or is it still too early? Uh, it is a dystopian trilogy uh, about kangaroos. Well, there you go. That's the elevator pitch. So a dystopian trilogy yeah. about kangaroos? Yeah. Like, is this a children's book or no? No, it's dystopian. No, not at all. It is um, actually, uh, it is very much continuing my interest in motherhood and reproduction and feminism and all of that. Wow. Okay. So I'm like the marsupials, the pouch. I'm seeing motherhood and mm-hmm. little mm-hmm. tiny baby kangaroos and pouches. And I'm seeing like drones. Uh-huh. I'm seeing drones <laughs> or something. Well, that sounds fascinating. That's cool. And, uh, you know, a dystopian trilogy that that's never, that's never a bad sell. You know, these days, it seems like people are always on the lookout for a good dystopian trilogy. Yeah, no, I, I told Xander about it and he said, Something about, oh, that sounds much more commercial than what I'm doing, and I felt like I should be insulted, but still, it probably is. You know, listen, I envy people who have, like, a really good instinct in storytelling, um, 
you know, for commercial stuff. Uh, in addition to obviously having uh, a lot of quality writing involved, you know, you don't want it to just be commercial, but um, that's a skill in and of itself, you know, to be able to uh, conceive of those things and to have like just a, some people just have a sense of it, you know, they have a sense of how to write stories that have broader appeal. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I wish I had, yeah. I wish I had I more mean, of it, frankly. <laughs> yeah. And we do have three kids who are approaching college too quickly. Wow. Well, okay. All the more reason, you know, and by the way, I think, yeah. ki- I do think having kids to support and having a family to support, um, you know, you, you quickly dispense with a lot of the, uh, precious affectations of the artistic life when that happens. I mean, not to say, not to say you have to completely sell out or that being a complete, a completely like cold blooded, like mercenary writer is justified in that case, in in that case. But you know, you have mouths to feed. You got to do what you got to do. Right. Well, uh, and then this tour, like how big of a tour are they sending you out on? Oh, it's a small one. It's not, um, I'm going to some, I'm doing some events in Texas and then Iowa City and uh, Miami. So, well, that's a, that's pretty good. If you know, that's pretty good. Yeah. And uh, you're in New York right now, so this is like, and there's something sort of mm-hmm. tri- there's sort of something sort of triumphal about you know you have your debut novel. You're you're in New York. You're in this hotel looking out at Central Park. Like this is a good moment to be catching you. Like this is. Uh, oh yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, I mean it's a it's it beats catching you on a day where like you know. You're exhausted and <laughs> the writing is, is going poorly. So I'm catching you right at your moment of triumph. Yeah, this is, this is it. Well, Feels good. Well, well I, uh, I congratulate you on the book. I congratulate you on your success. I certainly wish you well, um, you know, with it and with this tour and then uh, also with the, uh, the dystopian kangaroo trilogy. I will definitely have my eye out. Thank you. <laughs> thanks, okay. thanks for talking, Merritt. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, right, folks, there you go. That's Merritt Tierce. That's the program. Merritt's book, once again, is called Love Me Back. It's her debut novel. Support this young woman. Go buy her book, Love Me Back, available now from Doubleday. You can find her on the internet at MerrittTierce.com, and you can follow her on Twitter at MerrittTierce. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as usual, for all the great music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. And uh, hey, listen, get the app. This program has its own official app. It's the Other People app. It's available wherever apps are available. Uh, you know, whether you got an iPhone or an Android device, you can get the Other People app for free. It's the best, easiest way to listen. You download the app to your device. When you do that, the most recent 50 episodes of the program uh, will be there waiting for you free of charge. Uh, you can listen to them uh, right there on your device. You can download them to your device to listen to uh, offline if you don't have a Wi-Fi connection. And then best of all, you can uh, sign up for premium right there within the app, and that gives you access to the uh, full archives if you want to stream you know, all 300-and-something shows. So go get the app. The app itself is free. And if you would like to email me, uh, the address is letters at otherppl.com. If you have thoughts you want to share about anything, if you want to uh, tell me a story, go ahead. Letters at otherppl.com. Maybe that's the way to do uh, all this controversial uh, stuff. Maybe I can hear from you guys. You guys can write me letters. Tell me what uh, I'm supposed to think about everything. You can entertain it that way. Like, I don't want to be a coward, you know? 
it's like yeah, it's just one of those things so it's like you don't I, I don't quite have it all processed i think there's a lot to process i think when you get into uh, rape allegations i need to know more before i start condemning people or speculating about their uh deeds online and that's not uh you know at, at the same time uh anybody who feels they've been victimized you know i'm definitely listening and i, I have a lot of uh empathy don't mean to be disrespectful one bit i just think that it's uh, irresponsible of me in the you know with a microphone here to be talking about it until i know what's going on exactly and i hear from all sides and you know this thing has had some time to play out some more that's just my opinion right now i hope that's okay please remember that rousseau died of a stroke and that bella bartok died of leukemia that's it for now thanks for listening thank you to merit tears go get love me back and uh, i'll be back soon with uh you know, another episode, perhaps another story of uh, unbelievably embarrassing tedium related to the internet, which seems to be my MO. Am I the only person who goes through this? 